we're an engine of innovation. We bring in great people who create great ideas, great technologies, and then we disseminate them. We try to get them out in the world and entrepreneurs pick them up, companies pick them up, venture capitalists, investors pick them up and get them out and scale them. You know, how do we solve big problems? Climate change or mobility or urbanization? We technology scaled through great organizations. So that's one of our roles. And our other role, and I think about this a lot at the business school, is we try to produce the great leaders who will lead those organizations that will actually deliver innovation and prosperity, both here and actually all over the world as well. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a show that candidly explores how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you so much. Today was our staff holiday party because oh, cool. we're getting to the end of the quarter. We've got one more week. During the day. During the day. We have the lunch holiday party and then everyone goes home for the long weekend. Oh, that's nice. It is nice. Oh, good. Well, sorry. I'm cutting into your long weekend. The dean doesn't get the long weekend. He does just keep working. <laughs> <laughs> so can I call you John? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. It's not like no, Sir no, no. Paul McCartney. Like if I don't call you Dean, it's not like the Sir. John is fine. On campus. Everyone calls you Dean Levin? Not the faculty. Not the faculty, but the students. Some of the students, most of them. Would you consider it like rude if they didn't? No, I hardly think about it actually. Okay, well, I think about it. I've never had a Dean on. Yeah, you could call me John. That's perfectly That's fine. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I'm thrilled to do this. Can you start by telling me what the John Bates Clark medal is? <laughs> I didn't even know about this until I researched you. The John Bates Clark Medal. It is an award that's given, it used to be given every two years, and now it's given every year to an economist under the age of 40 who's made a significant contribution to the field of economics. It's often called the Baby Nobel Prize? Of the people who have won it, uh -huh. quite a number of them have gone on to win Nobel Prizes. And then there's some who have not, and I will be in that second category. You won it. You won the award. How old were you? It's for people under the age of 40. So I was 38. And is that the greatest academic honor that you could have at that point until the Nobel Prize? Is this runner up, basically? I was incredibly honored to win it. It was a great honor. It's one of these awards where, first of all, because people who are under the age of 40, there's a sort of cohort of people who are eligible and in any given year, there's lots of people who are doing fantastic scholarship and economics. Anyone could win it. And so you win and you feel like you sort of won the lottery because there were other people who were at least as good, maybe better at what you were doing. And I was incredibly fortunate to get it. How do you celebrate that? I don't actually remember Come how on. I celebrate. I mean, first of all, like you're an economics professor. It's not like you're throwing a huge <laughs> party. It's not like winning the World Series or something. Right. Okay. So you're not throwing a party? I think we had a party. I'm sure we had a party. This is a big honor. What did you win it for? My research actually sort of evolved over time. So when I started, I did my PhD in economics. I started, I was very interested in studying incentives. I was using game theory to study incentives in organizations and contracting and labor markets. And I got interested then in how to design marketplaces, spent a lot of time working on auctions. And then eventually enough got into a field called industrial organization, which is competition, regulation, innovation in different industries. So that was the area of my academic research. What does that mean? Give me a real life example of what you just said. Okay, like here's an example of one of the things that I worked on. So when I was in graduate school, I got very interested in auctions, in studying auctions. I'll give you an example that actually starts, it's not really an example about me, but then I got into this field afterward. So one of the topics that people were interested in, in thinking about auctions was how to allocate the radio spectrum. And in the 1990s, this is one of the, actually the problems that inspired me to, when I was getting into economics. People were trying to figure out, we need to set up the mobile wireless cell phones, basically. We need to give out licenses to the wireless carriers. How do we do that? There's a scarce resource, which is the radio spectrum. And the U.S. government decided, why don't we allocate this by auction? That led to a bunch of faculty at Stanford, actually, 
particular guy named Paul Milgram and another faculty member named Bob Wilson, another guy named Preston McAfee, who started designing auctions for radio spectrum. And they're actually, their method was adopted by the Federal Communications Commission used to allocate hundreds of billions of dollars of radio spectrum. So that was one of the problems that really inspired me when I was getting into economics was, okay, how do you take a scarce resource like the radio spectrum and design an auction that companies would bid in and would allocate the licenses in a way that was efficient, went to the people with the highest value, resulted in people building out the wireless industry, would be competitive, and so forth. And so that was, a, for example, a problem that I studied for a long time as an academic, wrote papers about, ended up helping some of those folks design when the FCC went to reallocate the TV station spectrum and turn it over for broadband wireless. I got to actually help design that auction that the FCC used Come in on. 2017. That's so cool. That's actually really cool. That's one of the things you that I loved about being a academic faculty member, which was- Being a professor. Being a professor. Before you were the dean. You get to find a problem that interests you, in this case, auctions. But I worked on other problems that were, you know, had other flavors of this. And then you might think through the theory and maybe look at some data. And then if you've got an idea or a good idea, or you really come to understand it, you might get a chance to take that and actually do it in Apply the world. Apply it to the real world. Apply yeah. it in the world. Yeah. And to me, that was always one of the things that I loved about being a professor of economics. I, you actually got opportunities to do that sort of thing where you took your research yeah. or the th things you learned in your research and you got to apply them. And by the way, that's one of the great things about being in a business school now than a business school, which is as a faculty member, it's about the best. I mean, you have so many opportunities to do that. It makes it incredibly exciting to be a faculty member at a business school because you get exposed to all these different opportunities to apply the things you study and learn about. So you asked me when I'm doing these podcasts, do I love it? Which is how I'm able to commit the time that I do to it. When you're doing the research, do you love it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's different parts of research, but the part that is the most fun is when you first get an idea and you start to explore it and work it out and you sort of get a glimmer of, okay, I think I understand this problem. And sometimes that's, you look at data and you understand sometimes it's just having the idea. I'll give you an example that is one sort of experience I always remember, which is when I, early in my career, one of the first papers I wrote as an academic was a paper about the residency match. The residency matches for when students are graduating from medical school, they get assigned to residency programs. There's actually a famous story associated with this, which is back in the 1930s, there was a problem, which was when people were leaving medical school, the residency programs, the hospitals felt there weren't enough students and they might not be able to hire someone. So every year they would be competing, competing, and they'd be hiring people earlier and earlier. And so they started hiring the medical students early in their fourth year and then in their third year. And eventually they're hiring the med students basically right when they're starting medical school which is crazy because they haven't even learned any medicine yet. So they decided we need a systematic way to run this market. And they came up with an algorithm. And so what happens is the when you're graduating from medical school, you fill out your preferences. Where do you want to be a resident? The hospitals fill out preferences. Who do they want? And there's an algorithm that matches them together. That was like 1945. Fast forward to the 1980s. And there's an economist starts studying this problem of how do you assign residency matches. And it turns out there was work in math that came up with the same algorithm. And so this economist who then discovered that these two things went together, started studying this. Actually, he won a Nobel Prize also for his work on matching. Al Roth, he's one of my colleagues at Stanford. So this is a super interesting topic if you're a kind of applied economist, theorist, is how do you design these matching algorithms? And so one of the first papers I wrote in economics was about the residency match. And actually the problem I was interested in there was why was my wife making so little money as a resident? Because <laughs> they paid you nothing to be a resident. I tried to figure out, well, wait, there's this whole matching algorithm. There's no prices or salaries in it. So how did it end up that she got this very low salary? I mean, like they weren't competing on price. They seemed to be competing on other dimensions. And so I was at lunch with one of my colleagues and I started telling them like, you know, Amy's not making all that much money. Meaning. Amy's colleagues at other residency programs were making more money? No, they're all making the they're same making the low same. amount. Yeah. <laughs> there's no salary competition. Yeah. You know, there's no, yeah. no term sheets. There's uh -huh. nothing like that. Yeah. And so we just puzzled over it at lunch. And then we kept puzzling. We walked back to his office and we're still puzzling over. We get up on the blackboard and we're like writing out equations and trying to figure it out. And we came up with a theory. And we wrote, ended up writing a paper about it. 
And, you know, I don't know if we got it right, but we came up with a way of thinking about it. And it was like understanding. You sort of find something you don't understand. You work on it for a while. You try to understand it. And then you try to explain it to other people. And that's what research is. And it's fabulous. The work that you did on auctions yeah. was cited by more than 1,500 academic papers since by grad students since it was written. It's a lot. That feels like a lot. I have no idea, but that feels like a lot. Less than some other people. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more than some, but less than a lot of other people. Yeah, all right. All right. I'm trying to like break your mold of incredible <laughs> humility. It's just tough. How many Nobel Prize professors are there? At Stanford? Or yeah, just at Stanford. I, well, in the business school, now that I'm dean of the GSB, I get to celebrate our faculty's right. uh, accomplishments. We had two, we've had two Nobel Prizes in the last three years. That seems like a lot. Again, I have no idea. Well, they only give out one Nobel Prize every year, so it's pretty good. We got two of the last three. They only give out one a year? Well, they can give it to a group of people in any given year. Okay. But we got two of the last three. Two of the three? Yeah. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. In GSB? In GSB? Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, it's pretty great. We've got two faculty in Stockholm right now. What, is, what does that mean for the university? It means that, first of all, that you're, you've got great people around to talk to, and it means that they're doing amazing work that's really making a difference in creating knowledge. Yeah, and that's good because it attracts higher quality students? It's good because it attracts students. It's good because it gives students the opportunity to be around. The U.S. university system is actually unique in the world because many countries, they did two things separately. They set up where are the great minds doing research? And then they have, where do you educate really bright people? And in a lot of countries, those are separate things. You take great minds, you put them in research institutes, and you take really promising students, and then they're in getting trained in different ways. That's a typical model in a lot of countries. Take the best researchers, you put them in sort of scholarly institutes without students. And the U.S. did things differently, really after World War II. They decided for great research universities, you should hire people, you should have them doing great research, and then you should put great students together with them. And that's a really special model, actually. It's really distinctive. I guess we take that for granted. We take it completely for granted because if you grew up in the U.S., that's what you know. Why was World War II the turning point? In World War II, it became apparent to the U.S. government that science and engineering, but in particular science, was going to be a competitive determinant for the country. And think about the Manhattan Project, of course, which was so critically important in World War II. So after World War II, the president went to a guy named Vannevar Bush, who was at MIT, and he said to him, write a strategic plan for the country about science. How should we invest in science as a country? And he wrote a very famous report called Science, the Endless Frontier, and he laid out a national strategy for science and engineering. And he said, we're going to locate science in universities. All the best research is going to go in universities. We're going to put money in there, create the National Science Foundation. We're going to have competitive grants to fund science. So it's going to be competitive. It's going to be open. It's going to be transparent. We're going to share ideas. So all of those idea things that we take for granted basically came out of this sort of fruitful period after World War II and set a path that was what basically what made the U.S. that we're sitting here at Kleiner Perkins in the absolute heart of innovation in the world, Sand Hill Road. I mean, this is the global epicenter. Where did that come from? That comes back for the same thing. It came from Stanford University, Silicon Valley developing. That came from putting great research, great engineering great idea generation in universities, innovation, being open with it, sharing it, trying to commercialize it. That was all part of the plan that was laid out by the country after World War II. It was incredibly farsighted. It was a really visionary strategy. Do you see anything like that percolating today? I think today we're actually at a very interesting point because you know now we're 75 years out from that time and the U.S. has been by far over that period, the absolute global leader in innovation. And that has been what has distinguished our economy. We are the magnet for talent. If you're an aspiring entrepreneur, you want to show up here in this office or in other offices around here to get funding, to get ideas, to learn from people, to meet other innovators. That is a critical thing for the country. And now we're at a time where actually 
other innovative ecosystems are arising. We have other countries like China, for example, that are investing hugely in research and innovation. We see the diffusion of innovation out to other parts of the world. You're probably investing in globally now, not just locally in Silicon Valley. That's a big change. And so actually for the U.S., if you think what is going to make us the global leader for the next 75 years, we really do need to reinvest in the same way we did 75 years ago in research, in innovation, in developing ideas, and make sure that we maintain that preeminence. And how do you view Stanford's role in this tailwind of globalization? There's really two parts of it. One is research institutes at Stanford are part of the word engine of innovation. We bring in great people who create great ideas, great technologies, and then we disseminate them. We try to get them out in the world and entrepreneurs pick them up, companies pick them up, venture capitalists, investors pick them up and get them out and scale them. You know, how do we solve big problems? Climate change or mobility or urbanization. We technology scaled through great organizations. So that's one of our roles. And our other role, and I think about this a lot at the business school, is we try to produce the great leaders who will lead those organizations that will actually deliver innovation and prosperity, both here and actually all over the world as well. You're a professor at Stanford for how long? I've been a professor at Stanford for a little over 20 years. Sorry, are you still a professor at Stanford technically? They didn't kick me out from being a professor. Okay, so you still teach classes? Not teaching right now. No. Okay, but you're still a professor. I still count as a professor. Nice. It's pretty good. Yeah. Dean, professor, John Levin. That just has a nice ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, when you were a professor, you are teaching classes and you have all these incredible students that are coming up with all these incredible ideas. Did you ever think, ah, oh, geez, that's good. I kind of want to do that with you. I kind of want to leave my job and go do that. Did that ever happen? Or maybe you and a set of professors? I did have students who went off and started all kinds of interesting like what? things. This is like a good time to name drop. Well, I'll give you one that's been in the news recently, although they're in a hard place right now, actually, this week. They're going through a tough period. I hope they're going to persist through it and turn it back onto a great trajectory. But a couple of my students from some years ago founded a company called Carvana, which is mm. sells used cars. A tough week. And they've had a very tough week, actually, but they built an incredibly ambitious company. Mm -hmm. They're your students. Yeah. And before they started Carvana, did they talk to you about it? Yeah, they did. They, I, was, I talked to them for quite a lot about car sales, about lending. I worked for a while on subprime loans and on auto loans. In fact, with one of the people who helped to found the company was one of my PhD students and actually was a terrific PhD student and was a professor at Wharton for a while. Did you get the itch? Are you allowed to do that? Well, many faculty, not many, but there are faculty members who do go off and start companies and I just have never gotten around to doing it. And, you know, maybe someday. Maybe someday. We see a lot of companies here. I get the itch sometimes. Like, that's pretty good. That's pretty smart. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I mean, I admire the people who go off and start companies and entrepreneurs. We have so many of them at the business school. And I th these days, probably 20% of our graduating MBA students start companies right out of school. 20? 20%, yeah. Tw sorry, 20% start? Roughly. What's the average? At other business schools? Yeah. Oh, at most places, probably 2%. 1%, 2%. I was going to say 20% feels incredibly high. It's quite high. But part of it is, you know, they're here, they're at Stanford, they're in Silicon Valley. And they're self-selecting to be in that environment. They're entrepreneurial. Yeah. And others, they come and they catch the bug here, that it's like people think they're, think out of the box and they want to try and do things. But I find those students, you know, incredibly inspiring to see the things they come up with and their ambition and their, they're willing to take risks and it's really neat. I actually think about things a little differently in some ways. Like one of the things that I've loved about being at Stanford and throughout my whole career is I actually love being part of an institution that's going to be around for hundreds of years and has been around for a while. So I think it, you have to have a certain mindset about wanting to just completely start something from absolute zero. Mm -hmm. So maybe someday, but I really like what I do now. Tell me more about that, the idea of being at an enduring institution. I'm a huge believer generally in institutions. I think that places like Stanford that I have the privilege of getting to have spent my entire career at, you have this 
feeling that you're contributing to something that many other people are contributing to and building on. And when you do something there, if you make a good decision to hire a faculty or admit a great class of students or graduate a great group of students, there's this tremendous feeling that like you're kind of building up this strength of this institution that other people are going to look back on and benefit from. In many years, there's this sense of continuity and progress over time. And I find that incredibly rewarding. And that plus the idea that having institutions like a Stanford University or you know, peer institutions or other great universities that people can look to and they can say, you know, what is it that these institutions stand for? They stand for openness. They invite in all different people. They're open to all kinds of different ideas. They're a place that are dedicated to truth and learning. We need more of that in the world right now. It's funny because institutions are getting a hard time. They're getting a very hard time. All institutions, not just educational ones. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the world has changed. Now I've been at the business school at Stanford for six years. And I would say that of the time that I've been there, that is one of the biggest things that has sort of happened in the world and happened in business is the decline of trust in institutions, educational institutions, political institutions, business, to some extent, business seems to have held up a little better in many ways. And that's a huge change for companies, for leaders of all kinds. There's less of an assumption that you're going to do the right thing uh, less trust in decisions, and it creates a new challenge for, creates a real challenge for leaders of all kinds of organizations. How do you build that trust and give people confidence that you're going to do the right thing when the time comes? The erosion of trust, how does that impact your job? You know, anyone who's leading an organization, it impacts their job. It makes it more important to communicate effectively. It makes it more important to do the right thing, but also to communicate, to listen to people and it changes the way we think about educating students. For many years, you educate students to be business leaders, and there are certain things you can take for granted. Everyone has sort of some shared assumptions about the way companies should operate and what their objectives should be and what the contribution they make is to society. And then you get into a world like we're in today where there's much more, there's more skepticism about business, about capitalism, about entrepreneurship, about investors. And you need to grapple with that. What does that mean? What does that mean as a leader of a company? So that's something that we talk about with students right from the beginning of the MBA program. We start talking to them about, okay, what does it mean to be a leader of an organization in today's world? What is the purpose of corporations? What is the way they contribute to the world? Maybe 15 years ago, we could have just taken that for granted that they didn't need to think about that. Today, you got to talk about it and something they need to think about. Do you find yourself on the defensive more? Almost like you have to protect the credibility of the institution. You can, absolutely. And there's something to that. I don't think that's a good way to operate, actually, to operate from a position of sort of feeling defensive and reactive. I think the better way to operate is to think about, okay, you know, what is it that I really care about? What am I have a bedrock principle in? What are the values of this institution? What do we really believe in? We believe in openness. We believe in truth. We believe in educating responsible leaders. And then try to act in accordance with those principles. And then you don't need to be defensive. You can just say what it is that you believe in and how you're trying to adhere to that. And it's not to say you don't ever have to be defensive. Sometimes you do, but if you know what you're trying to do and you've got a good set of principles that you're operating by, you can be affirmative. How do you measure success? It's a great question. You know, when you're educating students who are 25, 26, uh -huh. 27 years old, you know, there's all these proxies people use. Like salary on first year graduation, employment upon graduation, that kind of thing? That kind of thing. These short-term measures. Right. They're proxies. I mean, there's nothing you don't look at them. You look at those and you look at who are the students we're getting and who are the faculty we're hiring and what's our success recruiting them and so forth. Those are valuable metrics in some ways, but that's not what matters. You know, what matters when you educate a group of 25, 26, 27 year olds and you have an aspiration that they're going to go out and make a big difference in the world is when you look back 30 years later, 40 years later, 50 years later, 
what did those folks do? Makes it hard, by the way, to, to optimize when you're thinking <laughs> when the outcome is 50 years away. Yeah, especially but <laughs> when deans come in and out. It's, it's a contract. But it's really important to think that way, actually. You have to think that way. Otherwise, you'll miss the plot. Mm. So you, you do need to think that way, even though it is, uh, it's hard. Have applications to the GSB gone up or down? Over what time frame? Let's say in the last 10 years. 10 years being a proxy for the degradation of trust in institutions. The market for business education is fascinating, in fact. So if you look over a long period of time, like 50 years, it's been a tremendous growth area. There's just more and more demand for business education. And that has led to the rise of MBA programs and all kinds of online programs now and short-term programs and flexible, just the proliferation of tremendous amounts because people want to learn about business, about innovation, about leadership, about management, investing, and then they want to keep doing it all through their lives. So over time, it's really gone up and up. MBA programs went up for a long time and basically have plateaued actually as a just a general trend. And then they're very sensitive to the labor market. When the labor market is hot, like it's been the last couple of years, people stay in their jobs. Right. When the labor market cools off, they tend to come back to school. So right now, you know, it's a little hard to tell because everyone says but you the labor market's going to cool expect applications to go up. I think it's entirely possible that we'll see applications go up next year if the labor market is cooled off. The labor market's still pretty, still pretty hot, actually, right now. Still pretty hot. Not what it was. Not what it was last year, but unemployment's 3.5%. And in all fairness, if we use Silicon Valley as a microcosm, there are not as many companies hiring. Yeah. So still, for sure, Silicon Valley. And, you know, if you're deciding between, I'm in Silicon Valley and do I go get my MBA at Stanford or do I go work at the next startup? There's a lot less compelling opportunities in startups that are hiring at the rate that they were. We see some of that. You know, we see people who are thinking about coming for an MBA program and maybe they're working in a technology company and they've, depending on whether the opportunity to advance in their career is good or bad, that can sort of tip the balance. Same thing happens with students who are working in finance and consulting in other companies. And compared to a year ago, there's no question right now those opportunities are a little worse than they were. And Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious on the international thing. Did you know I was going to go there? No, I okay. didn't. Okay. I didn't. Are you excited to go there? You, no, you no, immediately go. nodded as... Uh, it's people, if you're wondering, whenever people talk about admissions, they're always curious about globalization and what happens well, with and students. when I say I'm worried... I am very worried. I think I already know the answer, which is why I'm worried, which is that we're not admitting as many international students. And isn't that in lieu of the fact that the economics are still better for the university with international students? They pay more. At the business school, we have a very global class. And we basically think about the potential set of students being from everywhere in the world. We have students from 50, 60 countries uh, every year in the MBA program. And significant, maybe 40% of the class is international. Oh, that's high. It is quite high. But of course, the US is only 5% of the world population. So depends how you think about it. Sure. I think in general, it's been a tremendous thing to have internationals. And for lots of reasons, actually, some reasons that people don't fully appreciate. So one reason that is great to have internationals is just there's tremendously talented people out there. Mm -hmm. They come. They're terrific students. A lot of them stay in the U.S. and contribute and do great things here. Some of them go back and they export some of the entrepreneurship, some of the dynamism out to other parts of the world. The other thing is it contributes a huge amount to the education of the U.S. students because every topic people, you know, you have students in the class who are from Nairobi and Beijing and Singapore and London, and you put them in a class and any topic that comes up, it's going to be a different discussion than if everybody has spent their whole life in the United States. And it's going to be so much more enlightening to people. It's a great thing, I think, for the school. And we're in such an interesting period right now because the country as a whole is moving away from globalization. It's becoming probably more nationalistic. China is a great source, has been a great source of students for us. And U.S.-China relations are at a low ebb and headed down. I'm hopeful we'll keep attracting great international students, but it's going to be more, I'm anticipating that may be more challenging 
over the next 10 years than it has been over the last 10 years. Are you allowed to just recruit from China as an example? Absolutely. If students who come from China, and in fact, our population of students come from China has not declined. Or Russia. We have students from Russia. It's okay. We have students from the Ukraine. Yeah, it's okay. Absolutely okay. Meaning well, I mean, it's okay as in no one's calling you saying, hey, can you just be careful? Nobody from the government's like, hey, you know, it's a tough time to do that. Well, no one has called me to say that, so that's a, <laughs> which I consider a good thing. I mean, it is more complicated. I'll give you an example with, you know, last year when the war in Ukraine started, we have students from Ukraine, we have students from Russia, we have students from all the neighboring countries, Poland and so forth, that are also affected by the war. We have faculty from a number of those places. And of course, the first thing you worry about is, first of all, they're all their families going to be okay. But then, you know, what's going to happen? What's the dynamic going to be? Totally. People from these different countries. And I, actually, actually, last year, our students responded to the Ukraine war in such an amazing way. First of all, the students from Russia and from the Ukraine, they really were able to come together in a way that was sort of unbelievable and made you really proud of the students that they could talk about the war and be empathetic to each other, even though this was a catastrophe for people. And then in fact, a number of the students who the ones from Ukraine organized all these humanitarian efforts and they've been really inspiring. They arranged to have a plane early on in the war. They arranged to have a plane flown over from the U S they got hospitals to wow. donate medical goods. They got the plane flown over to wow. Ukraine and they brought it in to the country and delivered. And they've done a bunch of missions like that. It's pretty neat, actually. I guess I worry with the international thing. As we nationalize, an institution like Stanford in Silicon Valley, without, let's say, diversity in the form of international students coming in or tapering down, I get nervous that it becomes very homogenous. It would be a real loss to the diversity and the richness of... Stanford campus and other campuses, if we were to lose, you know, we were to lose a big fraction of our international students, we were to lose our Chinese students. Take the case of China also. When you go into a period where there's a lot of political tension, like we're having now, which is really hard for the countries to talk, it's hard to do business, maybe back and forth with China are going to be harder. Having people in the U.S. who have an understanding of China and the Chinese people and people in China who have an understanding of the U.S., becomes even more important. That's actually a good role for universities to play, which is to foster some understanding between people in different countries, even if the political systems are at odds. That's a role we need to try to play in the coming years, and I hope we'll be allowed to play it. It's funny to me because we're having this conversation about, I don't even know what, like geopolitical tensions and what that means for the ramifications of your role leading the GSB. You probably have a lot of these conversations across a lot of different spectrums. Again, I go back to as trust erodes, then you now have to have all sorts of conversations on all of the hard topics. Like pick your hard topic du jour and you're going to have to figure out what is your response to it. Is that kind of annoying? Isn't this what's happened in business? Yeah. yeah it's, oh, yeah. I mean, think about the leading any company. Well, think about some of the stances that some business leaders Brian at Coinbase is an example, which is we are not political. We do not take a political stance, which I think actually is more akin to a university versus others that say, no, we need to bring everything to the workplace. To me, this is like the biggest thing that has happened in business. Like I said, in the last you know, five, six years is you know, societal issues, political issues have intersected with business in a way that's different than what we were accustomed to for a long time. And it's made the role of leading companies much more complicated, and it's raised the demands on leaders. We've spent so much time focused on that at the Stanford Business School because we want to prepare the next generation of leaders. They need to be ready to walk into an environment where they have to deal with a polarized society, with a complex set of issues, people asking them about sustainability or geopolitics or inequality, and they don't necessarily have to have a particular view or stance or do anything, but they need to have some awareness and knowledge of the context in which they're operating so they can be coherent and thoughtful and come to good conclusions. I'm really curious. 
What was conversation like for you at the dinner table growing up? Well, I grew up in a very academic family. <laughs> yeah. My father was a professor at Yale. He was, then was the president of Yale for 20 years. He was an economist also. And my mother taught literature for many years. Actually, when I was growing up, she was a full-time mom. And then after we got a little older, she went back and taught at Yale for years and years in, in uh, taught literature. So everyone always asked me, did you learn economics at the dinner table? You went, became an economist. And we never talked about economics, actually. It was not of general interest at the dinner table. But we did talk about all kinds of... So my mom has a big personality. She's incredibly intellectually curious. And so she's a force at the dinner table. Tell me more about that. So the thing that I... One of the things I really admire about my mother, actually, is you, know, you could have anyone over for dinner. You could have Bill Clinton over for dinner, or you could have your college roommate who, you know, wandered in in like a t-shirt and a pair of flip-flops. And she'll sit down with them and have like a fascinating conversation where they walk away thinking they were the, she thought they were the most interesting person on the planet. I always admired that, or still admire that about her. There's a quote that I read from you somewhere that says, teaching is a combination of persistence and innovation. Can you unpack that? funny. I don't actually remember saying that, but it sounds right to me. <laughs> Played and misattributed to you. No, no. I think that I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I think the thing about teaching, that's probably not the only things to teaching, but part of teaching is also about clarity and having empathy for students and listening to them and so forth. But I do think there's something about teaching, which is like with anything, to get to be good at it, you have to work really hard. People are always surprised that they come to, when they start teaching at the business school at Stanford, how hard it is to teach. You think, oh, I know, I've, I know tons of stuff about business. Like I know, no problem. I could share all this. No, actually it's really hard. The teaching is a craft. You have to learn it and refine it over time and get better at explaining and listening and fostering conversation. And you got to do that. That takes persistence, but you don't want to get stale. You got to keep trying new things and not get bored with what you're doing. I always felt teaching that you sort of had a, when you developed a new class, you would, the first year you teach it, yeah, you didn't have it figured out. Next year, you get a little better, a little better. And then at some point, you kind of get to the peak. And then, you know, I would always worry that I'd sort of tail off and decline. And the best teachers, they kind of keep it at that really high level for years and years and years. Those are the people I admire most who they can persist and then also be innovative. You ever get stage fright going in front of classes? I've had stage fright of all kinds getting in front of audience. It's just part of, just part of it. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Do you ever have trust issues in your job? Meaning you go to a dinner party say tonight, your wife says, hey, honey, we're going to my friend's house. And somebody asks you, what do you do? And you say, I'm the dean of GSB. And they go, oh my gosh, my son or daughter is actually about to apply to GSB. How much? And there's no negative intent there. I got to imagine that happens. It's happened before. Yeah. What do you do? It's terrific. I mean, we have lots of people who apply. I don't, by the way, I don't admit the class. So that's, you know, it's like all good for well, my you know, perspective. You make, a, you make a phone call here or there. We have an incredible admission staff. They do things professionally. So that's part of the process. I'm not saying that you are actually able to just like shepherd in anybody that you want. But I imagine that it comes up. People ask you. Absolutely. People ask all the time. They say, I mean, that's not all the time, but it, it happens. People ask, what does it mean to apply? But I say the same thing to everyone who asks about, you know, I'd love to come to the GSB and be a student, or I'd love to come to the GSB and teach. And you tell them, that's great. I'm so glad that you would like to do that. With You know, I bet you're terrific. I, you should absolutely apply. And then it goes to a British office, and sometimes it works out even. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. Literally anyone who said that to me, I'm so excited. I want to come be a student at Stanford. Say the same thing. Fantastic. That's a great aspiration. You keep working at it. Do you have any quantitative and if not qualitative measures of the students that have gone on to be great? Qualify great however you will. Any qualities that are consistent when they're in school? That's a great question. So one is, it's so hard to, you said, you know, people who've gone on to be great. So I think one of the things that's really hard is there's so many ways in which you can go on to make a great contribution. Mm -hmm. so often the people who, when people look at our alumni and they say, 
oh, you have these amazing alum. Phil Knight was an alum of this school. I mean, what- Well, you could, interviewed, right? Yeah, I'm fortunate that my title is the Philip Knight Dean of the Graduate School of Business. I mean, whose name would you want in your title more than Phil Knight? He's an icon of American business and entrepreneurship and you know, an incredible innovator and leader and person. So people like that or Mary Barra who runs GM. So people look at these iconic leaders. But we have other alums who people haven't heard about. I had a one of our alums in my office the other day who is not famous, but who is one of the people who had an amazing story where her daughter was born with a genetic disease called spinal muscular atrophy. And she was, a, along with her husband and others, was responsible for getting research started on this genetic disease, which over 20 years eventually got cured, or at least now there's a drug for it. So there's just so many ways in which you can contribute. You know, we've had alums who've gone off and been in the military and public service. Now, some of them are famous. Rishi Sunak is the prime minister of England. Others, they're lower profile, but they've made incredible contributions. So it's really hard to measure. I just wonder, but amongst the top performers, amongst the overest of overachievers in any field, is there a thread that you can pull? What are the characteristics Correct. of people when they're young? So the things we look for when we admit people. We basically, when we admit people to the business school, we basically look for two things. One is, of course, we look for high academic achievement because it's school and at Stanford, you've got to be a good student to be successful in the program. And the second, we look for basically a demonstration of leadership potential. That is capability, you know, competence, character. And I think you know, for a lot of the people who go on to be really successful, they're also really ambitious. You started at Stanford 20 years ago? More than 20 years ago, yeah. Wow. What would surprise you the most if you looked back about today? About the world. Mm. Dealer's choice, however you want to answer that. Or about like my job or what? what I was thinking more what? around like the context of graduate school and its role in society. That's, that was directionally where I was headed, but you could take it where you want. My career at Stanford, it's actually hard to sort out from just the way my own career went. Because yeah. when I started at Stanford, I was a researcher. I was a professor. I was teaching. I was doing research. And then my own career sort of moved in the direction of academic leadership. And from an economics department, which is really about research and undergraduate education, PhD students, to a business school, which is management education and leadership education. So in some sense, you know, just my own perspective has changed so much in terms of the, it's a little hard to disentangle those things. But in general, I would say, I consider myself just incredibly lucky to have gotten to be at a place like Stanford in a period of tremendous growth and innovation. And I think what has happened, academic institutions to me have gotten, they were already great when I started my career as a professor. They were great for scholarship and for education. I think they've gotten more, in a good way, more engaged with the world, more flow of ideas out of the university into creating companies or into policy and more flow of ideas into universities from the world. They've gotten increasingly open to the world. And some people, by the way, you could find the negatives in that. They're less protected. There's more political things and so forth, more disruptions on campus. There's a lot of great things about it too, really, that are really positive that universities are part of the world in which we live. Is there been a noticeable shift in your time of the type of students and the career choices they're making that are going to business school? You look from year to year at like what happens to students' careers, it's very hard to discern any changes. Really? Did it not used to be more people in iBanking? Completely. So you look one year at a time and you think, ah, it looks kind of like last year. Ah, it looks kind of like last year. You look over 20 years, it's radically different. So it sort of happens, you know, not sudden, but gradual trends. It is, for us, it, we've had huge changes. We used to have at Stanford, it used to be the case that pretty much half our students came to the business school from an investment bank or a consulting firm, and pretty much half our students left and went to an investment bank or a consulting mm -hmm. firm. And that's the model people have in mind of business schools often, is you take people from investment banks and from consulting firms, then you send them back to them. And that was 20 years ago, that was pretty much half our class. Now, we get students from 300 different Companies are 400 odd students in the class. They come from 300 different organizations and they go out to about 300 different organizations. And they're startups, they're tech companies, they're big companies, 
there's the occasional investment bank, there's all kinds of different investing, there's, they're all over the world. So people are coming from, as I said, 50, 60 countries. We get people into the program from also who are professional athletes, professional musicians in politics and journalism from the military, 5% of the classes from the military. When people actually come to campus, it's not the mental model a lot of people have of what is business school. It's a way more heterogeneous environment and set of people. What's the most popular elective? Oh, there's so many popular electives. It's hard to pick just one. Can I pick one? Go for it. It has the moniker of the touchy-feely class. I figured you might pick that. Yes. Tell me about it. So that's a class that was started at the GSB, Interpersonal Dynamics, as we call it, although it does have this other moniker that it sometimes goes by, actually more than 50 years ago. And the folks who started that, it was actually a very farsighted thing. They basically realized, this is back in the late 60s, 1970s, they realized that an important ingredient in leadership is self-awareness, kind of understanding how people, you come across to people, the impact you have on people. And this is an experiential class which is set up to help people develop greater self-awareness. You sit around and you talk to people and you talk to people about your interactions essentially and about how people are showing up in this small group. It's remarkable after 50 years of running this class, how many people come back to the school and they say that was the single most impactful thing that happened either at Stanford or in my life, taking this class. Super cool. We sometimes say that we aim to have an education that is transformative. Everyone says that. It's easy to say. It's hard to deliver. And that class does have the impact for many people of being transformative. You ever pop into class? Into that one? Any class. You ever just pop in? Oh, into class? Oh, sure. Absolutely. You do? Sometimes they even, faculty even invite me in to be a guest in the class. Oh, Yeah. Occasionally. About what? You still got the professor title. I can sometimes put on my teaching hat and try to do it, try to do it. Even I might be getting a little rusty and I'm not as good as a lot of our faculty at teaching, but I can try to do it. Flip the question on its head that I asked on the students, faculty. Is there a quality, a greatness quality? Actually, I'm in awe of the people who teach at the school, many of them, because they are so good at what they do. I think the thing that distinguishes the people who are really great is one is they just work so hard at it. They care about it so much. Like they're all in on their teaching. Here's an example. I was at dinner with one of our faculty members on Wednesday night and actually it was a couple of faculty members and, a, and an alum. And one of the faculty members is talking, he teaches a macroeconomics class on money and banking. And at dinner he says, well, the only thing that I've been thinking about, tomorrow is my last class. And I've just been thinking and thinking and thinking about like, what is it that I'm going to say to these students in the last class? The thing is, it didn't even matter what he was going to say to the students because you could just see like he is just, he just cared so much about like coming in in that last class and saying something to the students that was going to blow their minds. And everyone was sort of like, wow, that was, huh? That was super impressive. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great actually. I sat in this room maybe four or five months ago with Scott Cook. Uh-huh. You know Scott? The Intuit the founder. Intuit founder, yeah. yep. And he was telling me a story where he was a guest speaker at a class in Stanford undergrad. And there was a guy in the back of the class that was asking very pointed and thoughtful questions that distinguished him from the crowd. And... Scott goes to the professor after and asks, who is that? He says, oh, it's a guy named Ivan Spiegel. I think you should talk to him. He's got an interesting company idea. Scott said, I don't think this is ever going to work, but I'll give you some money anyway. Well, that was a good investment. <laughs> I actually don't even think at the time he was working on a company. It was just He went to work at Intuit for a few months, then got bored, then started Snapchat. You can't measure that serendipity. That's the power of an institution. You know, the, the experience of the pandemic was really interesting. We sent all the undergraduates home for a year, more than a year. And our students were on campus living in the residences, but the class was pretty much on Zoom. And 
you know, there were two things that came across in that experience. One was, it was sort of a revelation that you could actually do things with technology. I mean, everyone had this experience during the pandemic. Wow, this technology has advanced to the point where you can do things you'd never think. You keep companies running, you could mm-hmm. keep educational institutions running and all that. So that was amazing. On the other hand, it was so degraded in many ways, the experience and why it was just what you're talking about. It was a lot of it was the personal connection and the serendipity and the kind of chance encounters and the conversation you have afterwards. And that is the beauty of having a campus where you have really interesting, talented, aspirational people running around is the collisions. I have strong opinions on this, but feel very similarly about the role of collisions in the workplace. Well, it's one of the things everyone, every company now is dealing with, which is, you know, whether you are a believer in kind of giving people more flexibility and freedom and having a distributed workforce or a believer in five days a week in the office every minute, you know, everyone wants to get productivity, but everyone also wants to get creativity. And and in my view, it is a lot of creativity and happens through those serendipitous collisions. Who's your constituent? Who do you serve? Students or faculty? I serve the institution yeah. as a dean. Your job is to do what's right for the institution. Right. You have lots of constituents. You've got the faculty who are central, of course, to the institution. They're the students who are incredibly important. There's alumni. There's the university. I'm at a school, so there's the whole university. There's the world. You're the ultimate statesman. I think that's true in many organizations. Actually, you have lots of you have lots of stakeholders. You yeah. know what? What's sometimes complicated about being at an educational institution is you, there's no bottom line. Right. Look, I appreciate you. I'm really glad we could do this. Thank you. I end all these the same. The first, which I was trying to figure out, how do I ask this question? Usually I ask, are you hiring? <laughs> so maybe uh, I'll flip it on its head. Are you hiring faculty? <laughs> oh, absolutely. We're absolutely hiring faculty. And we're absolutely, you know, anyone who's listening who who's interested in an MBA program or any other educational program, we're open for applications. Okay. All right. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? What does it mean to you? You ask this in all your podcasts. Everyone. Yeah. One of the things, one of my great passions in life, which we didn't talk about, but is a longstanding passion is I love outdoor adventuring. I like climbing mountains. I like whitewater kayaking, all that stuff. I like doing it and I love reading about it. That's always been like one of the things I love. By the way, now you can follow it on YouTube and Instagram. That's also just best thing about social media, in my opinion. But I love reading about it. And I think of the great explorers and adventurers as like personifying grit. So I'll give you like one example. When I was growing up, I used to love reading about the early Himalayan expeditions. Herzog who climbed Annapurna and Sir Edmund Hillary who climbed Everest. One of the early explorers was George Mallory. He tried to climb Mount Everest several times actually in the 1920s and eventually died without making it to the top. And he's got many great quotes about mountaineering, but one of his quotes was, obstacles are merely things to be overcome. I always love that quote. So always think of that when you face a hard time. Great, John Lovin, thank you so much, man. That's it, thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time.